Well, good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a privilege to be with you. My name is Pastor Steve Meister. I'm a pastor of Manuel Baptist Church in Midtown Sacramento, and it's good to take the drive down to the valley just to be with you guys this morning. I have great esteem and affection and appreciation for your pastor Rob and his friendship and his faithfulness in the gospel, and so it's a great privilege to uh, serve those he loves and serves regularly and to encourage you in the Word of God. And with that in mind, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. If you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, I want to look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, and the baptism of our Lord Jesus. It's good to talk about baptism when you're amongst this. We're going to talk this morning about the baptism, and a passage which I'm sure you will agree with me, there is no bottom, we will not exhaust its depths and riches this morning. But we will skip a stone across the Jordan River and see all that the Lord has for us here in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And there it is written. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have gathered us on your day to speak to us. The same Spirit who descended upon your Son has been poured forth from you and him upon his church, that we might hear your very words he speaks to us. We pray that you would so do through the preacher, and that you would give us hearts and minds to hear. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, as I'm sure we all recognize, a fairly informal culture anymore and seem to be getting more so. But formality does still poke its head every now and then, like at a wedding or the inauguration of a, of a president. Uh, we have these sort of formalities to symbolize and mark a new beginning. Here we have an inauguration. It's a new beginning, but not just for a new married couple or even a new national ruler, this is a new beginning for humanity. Here, in the baptism of Jesus, what we mark is literally the passing of the old and the coming of the new. We're told here in verse 1 of chapter 3, it's in those days that the Lord Jesus had come, and in verse 2, in the preaching of John, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this means we're in the last days of what the Bible calls of the Lord's purposes with humanity, and the kingdom that God promised from heaven is now arrived. It's begun. Uh, prophets like Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 promised in verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And that is the kingdom of God. It's the new creation. What God promised his people, that they would be with him in his presence, in his place. A new world over which God would rule in a perfect reign. A new heavens and a new earth with his saints, where God would dwell with men forever. 
That's the kingdom of God, and it's begun amazingly outside here in the Judean wilderness. And so John calls in verse 6 of this chapter for Israel to repent and be converted, which is shocking because Israel didn't think they needed conversion. And yet their prophet is calling them like the nations. What we have in John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He's the end of the what we call the Old Testament prophetic ministry. And just like all the prophets before him, he's calling Israel to turn from her sins and turn again to the Lord, the Lord who's now come in the Lord Jesus himself. This is why Jesus will later say in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 11, that there is no one greater than John the Baptist who has arisen, and the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now, in the Bible, the law and prophets is just shorthand for what you and I call the Old Testament. And so Jesus, in effect, says the Old Testament has come until John. He's the end. He's it. Which means that on the other side of John is the new beginning, the newness that God promised to his people. John spoke of the one greater than him, and now Matthew identifies Jesus as the one who is greater here. And in this baptism, at the end of chapter 3, we're being prepared for the sequence that's coming in Matthew 4 and 5 before the Sermon on the Mount with the arrest of John and then Jesus going to have victory where none of God's people have ever had victory before in the wilderness over the devil. For the first time, there's a man from whom the devil flees, not from one who is caused to flight. So again, we see the old is passing away and the new is coming. But how will this happen? And that's all prefigured here and inaugurated in the baptism of Jesus. Here we have God the Father commissioning God the Son in the flesh and anointing him with his spirit to bring about God's kingdom. A whole new covenantal relationship with his people. The new has begun. And this event is so significant that every single gospel mentions it. It's a pivotal moment, and it summarizes the person and work of Christ. And just as if you're careful with Matthew, the first gospel, who is bringing all the streams of the Old Testament together to show us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So here in his baptism, we have that happening. In this passage, we see depicted the entire saving mission of Jesus as the new prophet, priest, and king to bring about a new creation on earth. That's what's depicted here in this amazing event. And as I said before, there's really no bottom to this. There's no way we could exhaust what's happening here. But what I want us to do is skip four stones across the Jordan River in Jesus' baptism. I want us to look at four aspects, and we're going to really pass through this text, the whole thing, four different times, and see how the Lord Jesus here is being inaugurated as the prophet, priest, and king of the eternal kingdom of God, the new humanity and new race to come. Let's think first about how Jesus is depicted as our new prophet. Our new prophet. We're told in verse 13 that Jesus came to be baptized by John, and the fact that he did so has puzzled theologians ever since. In fact, we see in verse 14, it puzzled John himself. John needed Jesus' baptism, not this way. 
And it's nearly certain this is the first time um, that John and Jesus met as adults. They had met in utero, we know, in the Gospel of Luke. But John, in verse 11, was preparing the way of the one, he says, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what's significant is by John's shock here in verses 13 and 14, he knows he needed that baptism too. Now mark that, beloved. John, a holy man, a man the Bible says was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, a man who was devoted to God his entire life in a radically self-denying ways, he knew he couldn't stand before God on the merits of all his radical devotion. Even him. John knew he too needed the work of God's Spirit that he himself was promising. He needed the fruit of his own message. He needed the work of the coming Savior to reconcile him to the God he represented. The great reformer Martin Luther, when he passed away, in his coat was found a slip of paper. And among his last written words was, We are beggars. This is true. There is no one outside the need of the grace of Christ, even his greatest servants. What accounts actually for their greatness is they recognize that they among all remain great beggars. And so did John. John was in need of his own baptism. And John knew he needed Jesus as the baptizer, not himself. Jesus didn't need him. Notice that those who were coming out to John in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter were coming to be baptized, confessing their sins. Jesus had nothing to confess. He needed no baptism. But to John's objection, Jesus says in verse 15 of our passage, let it be so for now, at this time. Now it's appropriate The time for Jesus to baptize with the Spirit has not yet come because his work is just beginning, his earthly saving ministry. But Jesus here comes intentionally of his own accord to be baptized. John had not sent for him, nor was he any more than the servant of the Lord, his master. Yet John's role here is to anoint Jesus into the prophetic ministry as John's ministry was ending. It's the passing of the prophetic mantle. Now, God promised back in Deuteronomy, through Moses, in Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up for them, his people, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, already in the Gospel of Matthew, if you're familiar with it, we're told that like Moses, Jesus fled Pharaoh as an infant. And like Moses, he has come out of Egypt to pass through the water before entering the wilderness. So we have here a new Mosaic prophet, one greater than Moses, who is coming to speak to Israel at the same Jordan River to commence his ministry of revelation. And we're told in verse 16 of our passage that the Spirit of God descended Now, that's a very deliberate and common depiction in the Old Testament of how the Spirit of God came upon God's prophets for ministry. But here we have God the Son, the second person of the triune God, inseparable from His Spirit. Now, according to His human nature in incarnate ministry, Jesus is empowered and commissioned by His Spirit to reveal God, 
to reveal God in a manner far exceeding any prophet who's ever come before. This prophet is not just speaking for God. He's speaking as God himself in the flesh. Now, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been silent, as it were. He hasn't spoken. But now, after this baptism, his mouth will be, as it were, unsealed to reveal God's will. And he will bring forth in human words the very voice of Jesus, the very voice of God is heard. God the Son speaking his Father's word, the word of the only God. So, verse 17, we're told with this, the Father is well pleased. Now this affirmation of Jesus will be repeated, if you know, in Matthew 17 at Jesus' transfiguration. As his divine glory is unveiled, and again we hear a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples are to listen to Jesus because he pleases the Father as his prophet and speaks his words. The word of God has become flesh that his word might be given hearing in the flesh. The words and acts of Jesus prophetically reveal the only true God. That's why later in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out his first mission, the 72, he says in verses 40 to 41, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever receives Jesus' word receives Jesus, receives the one who sent Jesus, God himself. Jesus is the Father's prophet, he says, so receive him and welcome his message, and to do so is to receive God. And this is the very rest that Jesus is bringing to all those who labor without God. In Matthew chapter 11, a well-known text, in verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, exactly. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly for heart, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What rest was Jesus talking about? You, you can't separate that invitation from what he said just before it in verse 27. He said this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What's the rest? It is the true knowledge of the true God given by his Son. It is the Son. He doesn't just have knowledge of God. He knows the Father and reveals the Father to all who are his and who come to him. And this is the rest that Jesus gives the assurance of the knowledge of God through his prophetic ministry, to know God and Jesus. In the 4th century, the church father Augustine, in his rightful classic, The Confessions, began by saying this of God, You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. We rest when we receive the purpose of our existence. 
And that is to know God. To know our Creator. And that is, as the Bible says, eternal life. And that eternal life, that knowledge of God, only comes through Jesus the prophet. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the prophet that all the prophets promised. He's the one that was to come. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5, Isaiah promised, There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now Matthew's already told us in his gospel that Jesus is of the house of David, the son of Jesse. He is the root and branch that will bear fruit. And now the Spirit of God is seen to rest on him with wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And it's this prophetic knowledge that will cohere with his perfect righteousness. Isaiah goes on and says, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In Jesus' prophetic ministry, he sees through all the charades and confusion of the world. He calls evil, evil, and good, good, with an audacious bravado and clarity. He comes to earth and he talks to it like he owns the place. Because he does. He's more than a prophet. And he makes no assessments based on outward appearance by what his eyes see. Because he knows knowledge is self, itself. He knows God. He is God in the flesh and so speaks with an unequaled authority, an unequaled consistency, integrity, and truth. So much so that we have to say that Jesus' words don't just have truth, they define it. They are truth. They're the standard of truth. And that will be proven in the next chapter when Jesus resists all the temptations of the devil with the word of God. And when the last Old Old Testament prophet John is arrested, a light will dawn, we're told, and Jesus begins proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Words of eternal life. The great evangelistic prophet Isaiah ends his prophecy in Isaiah 64 by praying to God, Oh, that you would rend or open the heavens and come down. And in verse 16, we see here, the heavens are opened and he has. And the prophetic work of Jesus will climax in his sacrificial death that communicates more vividly than any other act God's holy condemnation of sin and His holy love for sinners. And on the other side of that resurrection, Jesus will give His prophetic mantle to His disciples. The book of Acts begins in Acts 1.1 by Luke saying that His gospel is all that Jesus began to do and teach. All He began. Which means the book of Acts and the beginning of the church is what Jesus continues to do and teach. And he tells his apostles in Acts 1 verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit 
who here descends on Jesus will descend on his apostles, and no longer is Jesus his own witness on earth, but his spirit bears witness through their, his witnesses who become the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets. In this word, the word made flesh, pleasing to the Father, speaks through his prophetic word, what we have in Scripture. What that brings us to is there's just no way to know God by somehow getting around Jesus and the Bible. There's no way around it. There is no true knowledge of God without the true God in the flesh, the Word made flesh, who by His Spirit spoke truth and then sent His Spirit to His apostles and prophets to give the truth in Him. If you want to know the true God, you need His Word. His Word Jesus and His Word inscripturated. God speaks to us in Him. He is the prophet of God who has come to reveal God to us. And He reveals the only way to God through Him. Secondly, not just as our new prophet, but secondly, as our new priest. Our new priest. Jesus comes to the waters in verse 5 of this chapter with all the region about the Jordan, Jerusalem, and Judea. Every sinner in the region is coming. And in verse 15, he is baptism with them, he says, is fitting. Jesus here is fully identifying with all the Jewish people and even the entire sinful humanity into the Gentile regions who are coming to confess their sins. Now, significantly, there is no record in the Bible of Jesus ever confessing a single sin. In fact, later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verse 11, Jesus will teach his hearers and say, If you then, being evil... Now, typically, when I point out sin, I like to use we, because it certainly includes me, and you can ask my wife later, and she will assure you it does. Jesus never does that. He says you. Even apostles don't do that. Later, James will write in James 3.1, For we all stumble in many ways. Even an author of Scripture has to tell the truth. I stumble too. But Jesus, when it comes to confessing sin, there's no we. Only you. And yet he comes to be baptized. And he says in verse 15, it is, it's fitting to be baptized. Because God's deliverance of his people has always come through water. He delivered his people out of slavery through the Red Sea. He delivered his people across the Jordan into the promised land. And God's deliverance through water was eventually depicted in the temple through the priestly washing of the priests. The, the ceremonial cleansing. In Leviticus, a priest could not represent the people of God without washing. He was being set apart to mediate for God. So Jesus here comes to be washed, to identify with and to intercede for God's people. And in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us that Jesus came at 30 years of age, which is not insignificant because that's when men entered priestly ministry, at 30 did Jesus need this baptism for himself? No. John knew that. He needed to be the baptizing. 
But don't forget, Jesus didn't need to be born either. He didn't need to do any of this. He didn't need to be hungry. He didn't need to be sleepy. He wasn't doing any of it for himself. It was all for others. Dear Christian, it was for you. The one who needs no deliverance enters the waters of deliverance, he says in verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. That is, that there would be real human righteousness accomplished before God on his earth. One writer described it like this. He said, Jesus' baptism, like his impending death, was vicarious. It was embraced on behalf of others with whom the Father had called him to identify. Now, Jesus' vicarious ministry, how will it be completed? We have a hint of that, too, even here in verse 16. We're told that Jesus went up from the water. Now, if Jesus came up out of the water, it means it can't have just been sprinkled or poured on his head, right? And all the Baptists said, Amen. But not only that, if he was coming up out of the water and had been immersed in it, he had gone down into the water, buried in the water, and the effect of his rising is what in verse 16? The heavens open. This immersion, this burial in water, opens the way to heaven. It symbolizes the life that Jesus lives is a life he lives to lay down, to die, to enter the grave, and to rise in new life into the heavens. That's his true baptism. And Jesus will repeatedly refer to his death on the cross coming as his baptism. He says, for example, in Luke 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Or in Mark 10, verse 38, he'll ask James and John, who want to sit in Jesus' victory and ask what good seats they can get in his kingdom, and Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? To be submerged and immersed under judgment. The water baptism here symbolizes the whole focus of Jesus' life. That he'll be submerged under the justice of God by his death on the cross, go into the grave, and then rise again, and so rising, open the heavens. And the Spirit would come and give new life to those united to him. He's depicting his saving work in his baptism. And for this, in verse 17, he is the Father's beloved Son. God's pleased. Now remember, God centuries earlier had commanded Abraham in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, your beloved son, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. But as you know how that went in Genesis 22, God stayed his hand from providing Isaac and provided a substitute for Abraham's firstborn son. But now God provided what he forbid Abraham, the sacrifice of his beloved son as a substitute for sinners that we would be spared the justice we deserve 
and that the way to heaven would be opened. And Isaiah, again, as Isaiah prophesied of this in his servant songs, he began in verse Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. And we see here, behold, the delight of the Father in his Son, because he does the Father's will and lays down his life. And Isaiah will continue in Isaiah 53 in his fourth and climactic song. And we read this in verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But then Isaiah will write... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You could translate that, it pleased the Lord to crush him. The son in who he delighted, it pleased him. And after the guilt offering of offering himself, the risen Savior, a sacrifice for sin. We're told in Isaiah 53, verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What did Jesus say in verse 15? He'd come to fulfill all righteousness. To make many righteous. Isaiah promised centuries before that it would please the Lord to offer his son to give righteousness to many as he bears their iniquities. And for this, God is pleased. This is the great exchange of the gospel. The fulfilled righteousness of Jesus' life is ours by faith. And the judgment he suffered for our iniquities is his so that we're accounted righteous as he suffers the judgment for our unrighteousness. And by this, God adopts us as sons and gives us his grace. That's why the apostle will write in Ephesians 1.6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the beloved son in whom he's well pleased, and who's his will to crush, to love us and bring us to him. It is because of Jesus, with whom the Father is well pleased, that we can pray, as Jesus will teach us, our Father who is in heaven. And we can know that he, Jesus, has opened the way to heaven as the Son of God who has come down for us to live for us and die for us to bring us to God. There is no way back to God. There is no eternal life in the presence of God except for the way opened by his only priest, the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Jesus says he is the way. The heavens open, as we see here, only by his work and his death and his resurrection. There, there's no other road, no other restoration, no other hope we can offer others or hold on to for ourselves outside of Jesus the only one who's come to open heaven for us. And dear Christian, if you're trusting Jesus, Scripture says there's a new and living way opened for you. He's opened the heavens. And we journey our way through the world by drawing near to God in Him. And we are assured that we are welcomed 
because we come to God through his beloved Son in whom he's well pleased. And this will continue until he completes his work, not just as the prophet and the priest, but thirdly, as our new king. Our new king. When the father declares in verse 17, this is my son, we remember some of the divine conversation and promises in the Old Testament. Like Psalm 2, verse 3, the Lord said to me, you are my son. We remember especially what we call the Davidic covenant. How in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now Jesus is a son of David, the one whose line was given that promise. His kingdom will be established forever. And just as when Samuel anointed David, and in 1 Samuel 16 we read that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, so now here, verse 16, the Spirit descends upon David's greatest son, the king. And Psalm 2 promised that God would set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And so his king here, his kingship will be coronated on Zion, his holy hill. But on a cross, his final baptism. And Matthew makes sure we don't miss the irony because at the end of his gospel in Matthew 27, we're told that on the cross of Jesus hangs, this is Jesus, the king of of the Jews, and they knew far less than what they had written. He was coronated with thorns. He triumphed on a cross. His regal robes were drenched in his blood for his people as he died for our victory. John Calvin, the reformer, said this, There is no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated, as the gallows on which Christ has subdued death and the devil and has utterly trod them under his feet. On the cross, God's king redeemed his people to bring us to his victorious kingdom, to qualify us as citizens. He died to pay the penalty of our sins and to rescue us into his fold. That way, his kingdom is opened and he possesses the nations to recreate the earth. This is the coming of the kingdom of heaven, the recreation of all things by God. And back in the first creation, in Genesis 1, we're told that God's Spirit hovered over the waters and fashioned creation out of chaos. And now, verse 16, we see God's Spirit descending upon the water on Jesus. Because Jesus is the first of a new line of humanity. Now it is not only those who are born in Adam, but now you can be born in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. And the Spirit, in a new act of creation, conceived Jesus in the virgin's womb as a creative act of a new man, and now he receives the Spirit as a man without sin on the earth. And the Spirit here, we're told, curiously, verse 16, descended like a dove. Now, God's Spirit is invisible. He doesn't have a body. But God here manifests the presence of His Spirit as a dove. The dove who was the bearer of peace 
sent to Noah after God recreated the earth through judgment after the flood, bearing God's peace. So full and final peace is now being brought by the king. Christ is reconciling humanity back to God to bring us to him. And just as in the first creation, when God looked at all that he had made and declared it was very good, so in the new creation, in verse 17, he looks at its commencement, at its king, and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's very good. And as the gospel ends, Christ will declare that his authority in heaven and on earth is given to him because he is the Father's beloved son. He's the king. And his prophetic and priestly ministry establishes him as the king of the nations, the author of a new creation. And so go into all creation and tell the world to become disciples of Jesus, to trust God's king, the one who has a name above every name. The father has brought the kingdom to earth in his son. Now, if this isn't enough, What we see here is God's prophet, priest, and king. We want to make a fourth and final step to push further and see God the Son. God the Son. And really, as we reflect on what happens here, we almost want to take off our shoes and consider the holy ground. Uh, Augustine in the fourth century said, Go to the Jordan, and there you will see the Trinity. You want to see God as God is come to this passage. Because here, at Jesus' baptism, as heaven's opened, the mystery of God's triunity is revealed for us. We have here in verse 17, a voice from heaven who speaks of his Son. Now this isn't just a mere human title, as those who might be referred to as the Son of God as it's used in Scripture of man, as God's created him. You have the Father in heaven in the communion of the Spirit who is speaking to Jesus who he is. The Father's unique Son. His only begotten Son. Now if the only God, eternal, has a Son, then the Son must be God. Which means the voice of heaven must be Father. And as the eternal, immense, and immutable God, he must be Father eternally, without change. And so the Son must be Son eternally, eternally begotten. An origin that, far unlike human origins, is non-sequential, non-physical, a single eternal act that always is. The Father communicates the divine essence to the Son with whom he breathes forth his Spirit. So what God reveals here and begins to show forth in the coming of Jesus is that God is the Father and the Son in the communion of love of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit is the true God, the one who is. He's triune. And in his baptism, Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, depicts his death for our behalf and rising for our justification So that if we're united to Christ by faith, Paul tells us in Romans 6, we are buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And then later, in the same place, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. By the glory of the Father and the life of the Spirit, all who have trusted Christ have new life by the same Spirit of God who indwells us by the grace of the Father and unites us in the Son to raise us to be like Him. Salvation is simply life in the triune God. Knowing God as He is, as He's spoken to reveal Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And by the love of the Father and the life of the Spirit, we have faith in the Son and are drawn into life with God Himself. That's why everyone who trusts Christ is called to this very same ordinance, baptism, this very same symbol. And we testify that the death we deserve and the life we haven't lived was accomplished by Jesus alone. And by our immersion in water and baptism, we take a new name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We are assured that in Jesus Christ, we are the people of the only true God, the triune God. And this is our life, this is our rest, and this is our hope forever. Evagrius of Pontius in the 4th century said, The kingdom of God is this, the knowledge of the Holy Trinity, to know God. And God sent his prophet to be our priest and our future and eternal king, because he's God himself, God the Son in human flesh, that we might be brought into God by faith in him. Jesus went to the Jordan that day that you and I could have life in the Trinity today. All for us. Now the Gospels sometimes are portrayed to us as though Jesus were some kind of life coach and then all of a sudden he dies in the end out of nowhere. But what we see here is that the entirety of the life and ministry of Jesus is good news. It's gospel. And the point of all that's prefigured and symbolized here is that the only way to know the only God and to have life eternal in him is through Jesus the Savior. So we trust him and we hold forth his name to the nations. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus that would gather us, that you might speak to us and encourage us in him. And we pray that as we've only begun to meditate upon how all the streams of promise are fulfilled in the coming of your Son, that you would cause us to continue to commune with you and worship and to meditate on your goodness through your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, our Savior, our priest, prophet, and king. And we pray that we would live in the consolation and assurance and courage of knowing we have life in you, the only true God, by our risen Lord Jesus. We praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.